the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast today, Monday, September 11th. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's insight and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today, Nick Hillstrom, a trader at Annex Wealth Management and the investment team. Welcome back. Hey, Danny. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Welcome to you. Morning, sir. And Matt Morsey is our investment team manager. Hey, Danny. First of all, I just want to say thank you to all the listeners who keep coming back week after week. We appreciate that you subscribe, that you've shared with others, that you enjoy this, and we like making that. As we get started, I want to give a big shout out to Trevor Nargis on our team. Recently was promoted to trading team supervisor at Annex and also got engaged this past weekend. So congratulations, Trevor. Let's dive into the podcast. So we got some big upcoming data. Monday's actually a quiet day, but then following that, Tuesday through Friday, we get a slew of information. We're going to get our small business optimism survey that comes out on Tuesday. It's expected to be at 91, which is slightly below where it has been. So there's some fear there that that continues to deteriorate. We also have CPI coming out on Wednesday, so that's a big one to watch. People had been expecting that number to come in slightly more than where it has been, so that trend has been declining, and we have people estimating that we're going to have CPI below three at some point here, but August's number is coming in with the expectations of a, a bit of a rebound, and we've seen that with some of the energy, and we'll talk about that in our SWOT analysis. Also, retail sales comes out Thursday. Give us kind of a look at what we had going through August with back-to-school sales and so forth and how how the consumer's been faring in that that regard. And then on Friday, we get industrial production, capacity utilization, and the Michigan Sentiment Survey, uh, all of which essentially are showing some deterioration. um, But for the most part, we'll see how uh, those numbers come through. So with that, Matt, do you kind of want to get us into our strengths? Thank you, Blaine. Yeah, our first strength right now is going to be high yield performance within the fixed income markets. Uh, fixed income is something we've talked about all year long. We've really highlighted for most of the podcast higher yields, especially within money markets in the short end of the curve. But one thing that, that's really kind of out there in terms of is the performance from high yield. Uh, you got almost a 7% return so far year to date compared to the aggregate bond index, which doesn't have any high yield in it, is, is just slightly positive at about a half a percent. So you're getting about a 6% return above the aggregate bond index by taking that risk within fixed income. You certainly have the volatility that's going to be there as well, too. So you get compensated for the volatility so far in high yields. But one of the things that we're looking at is as the economy has weathered a lot of the storms that we thought we'd have this year. We had the banking issues earlier this year. We had the rise in rates throughout all of last year as well, too, is that high yield has still performed well when many people probably thought that it wasn't going to on a risk-adjusted basis because of some of that uncertainty, but it's done really well so far. Yeah, and the economy being as resilient as it has has really helped prop up some of those returns and those companies, essentially, their financials and their leverage ratios, all that has come in better than expected. And then you put on top of that the supply-demand dynamic that we've had coming out of COVID, where essentially a ton of issuance was had and dealt out in 2020 when interest rates fell as low as they did. Companies did a really good job of pushing out their debt and putting out their maturities, and high yield was no exception to that. And so essentially you have from 2025 to 2028 is really where maturities start to come in for, for high yield. And those companies haven't had to issue any debt going through this last massive rate hike that we've seen. And because of that, you kind of have the supply demand dynamic that has allowed high yield to perform really well. However, all that while, companies that have been issuing that debt are bringing on new debt in that high yield space. We've seen their 
ratios from leverage and coverage ratios start to deteriorate a bit. And then we also have more defaults and downgrades that have been coming up in the high yield space itself. Some companies just recently have started to bring some debt to market just to kind of dip their toes in the water. So we're starting to get a, a feel as to where that, that space really is headed over the next several years as a lot of these companies bring on or have to refinance that debt. But for the most part, the performance in high yield has been, I would say, an outlier in comparison to most of the, the broader fixed income market. Just from what you said, Matt, I mean, six and a half percent versus half a percent when everyone at the start of the year was, you know, essentially saying, yeah, get into investment grade bonds. You're getting a respectable yield there. And then we saw rates continue to stay high, which we had talked about before, and high yield being actually shorter on the curve from a duration standpoint compared to egg has really performed very well. Yeah, I think it's an area that we've been overweight within our client portfolios for quite a long time. You know, it's produced higher yields, some equity-like returns at different points of the market cycle. But as you mentioned, it's something we do need to watch very carefully. Once we get to that spot where we start to see new issuance coming in, companies having to refinance or, or pull out and grab more debt and having to pay a higher yield on that. Yeah, that's great to get that higher yield, but there's going to be risks that we're going to watch there and whether or not that company's going to be able to pay that and what the how well that company is going to do going forward, having a higher interest rate on their balance sheet. So we'll be watching for that. Also, economic sl slowness as it starts to pick up essentially later on this year, next year as well, too. That's an area where maybe we want to be in line or even underweight credit at some point if we think there's going to be a risk of defaults going up too much. Yeah, absolutely. One area inside the high yield market is energy that has actually performed really well. And they did a lot coming out of what we saw in 2015, essentially with the oil market crash that we had then, of deleveraging, getting their balance sheets in order. And now, I mean, we're seeing them reap a lot of that benefit, given the fact that they don't have to come back to market with a ton of new debt. Uh, and Nick, I mean, you've done some analysis on the energy sector as a whole, and that's been actually doing really well year to date. It's definitely an area that, as an investment team, we've been looking at for quite some time now. Recently, we saw that crude oil reached a 10-month high, and this was capped off with nine straight days of rising oil futures last week. This has bode really well for energy stocks as a whole. So in the last three months, the Spider ETF fund XLE has been up 13.5%. And during that same time frame, the S&P has been up just 4.5%. And a lot of this is due to high oil demand coupled with a decreasing oil supply. We saw that EIA inventories fell 6.31 million barrels week over week. Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been at the lowest level it's been since February of 1985. So when we look at this, even with green initiatives in the more developed countries, the demand for energy continues to grow through emerging markets. A lot of emerging economies need this energy to grow. This will continuously increase the demand for energy going forward. Yeah, that's some really good points there, Nick. And, you know, some of the things that you see with that of, of having higher energy prices, the profitability of those companies have gone up quite a bit. Over the last few years, they've really been able to take those profits. And because they're not reinvesting back to the same extent that they used to in the past, due to a lot of the regulations and uncertainty of what prices will do, they've been feeding that money back to shareholders in terms of share repurchases, debt pay downs, dividends that are going out. So those are areas of the, of the market that we've liked quite a bit. Um, energy has done really well recently, like you mentioned. You look at it and that supply dynamic is huge. You've got Australia and Chevron, the workers of multiple LNG plants down there, and they're going on strike as of Friday. That's 7% of 
the, the world supply. So right there, we had natural gas on Friday up, at least in, in the UK markets and Asian markets, which is where a lot of that natural gas goes, up over 10%. Like it was, it's a big move and we're seeing these su- supply dynamics play out and uh, it's giving energy and essentially those commodities a, a good boost. Segwaying into our weaknesses, kind of have China on here multiple times, but we're going to hit it first in weaknesses. And that's really the, the governance aspect of Chinese companies. Everyone talks about opaque balance sheets, auditing is subpar. On top of that, communication from these companies is something that is starting to, I think, show up in a way that is going to hurt them in the long run. We had several real estate companies over in China essentially default this year. One of the most recent ones, Country Garden, everyone saw that one in headlines. But we also had another one that, Daliwanda, that essentially had $400 million of debt that was going to essentially go bankrupt. They messaged out two days before the maturity or the potential default saying, it's okay, don't worry, we're going to make whole this payment. Then they came out the next day essentially saying, actually, we're not going to be able to pay. The bond price is plummeted. So people started unloading that debt, thinking, okay, I don't want to hold on to this. I'm at least going to get some pennies on the dollar for it. Then the next day, they come back out and say, actually, we're good. You're going to get paid. So you have this massive price movement on this. And these are big investors. Like These are typically your institutional investors. They're not just your retail investors investing in this sort of debt. This is risky debt to begin with. And what that does is the people that got burned, who offered up that debt initially or like helped fund that project, are essentially going to walk away from China saying, you know what, you burned us. Like Someone made a profit off of this. This was semi-shady, right? There's an issue here. S&P essentially grades those companies on their governance, and they're graded weak to begin with, which is the lowest rating they can get. But there's been a deterioration over the last two years of the actual governance inside China, and it's something that needs to be monitored. Yeah, that showed up previously in the equity markets from Chinese stocks, especially within the tech side of things. There was a lot of messaging that came out of Beijing in terms of whether or not U.S. shareholders were, were still going to be able to invest in those companies or not, how many of them were going to get delisted, or especially because you're dealing with different types of shares when you're looking at foreign companies. It's not at the Apple shares for Apple are very, very different than a Chinese company and how they can actually be traded here in the U.S. So there, there there's some other dynamics underneath that, that go into that. And China was kind of coming out and going, you know, we don't know. We're not sure how much longer we're going to allow you to do this or if we're going to allow you to do this. So their messaging both on the equity side and fixed income side has been really tough to follow. That's one of the reasons why we use active managers. We want active managers within funds to be able to be able to travel to China, to be able to go there, to understand what's happening to have relationships with the companies that they're going to be investing in and make that decision of when they want to underweight or overweight. I know we get a lot of questions from clients in terms of, hey, I hear all this bad news happening in China. What part of our portfolio is there? Is it going to make an impact? And for the most part right now, no. Very, very little amount of the allocation is going to go towards China. But we allow that one from our own point of view of U.S. versus international, developed versus emerging market, but also the fund managers we use there to go, you know what, now is the time to get in or here's the time to pull back. And we also want to be forward looking with that as well, though, too, because this stuff is happening today. It's been in the news for a long time. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what it's going to be like in six months, a year, three years from now. So we want people who are forward looking to be managing those funds in order to do that. Absolutely. And I think one big piece of that, like when you think through that, if you get 
if those people get burned or investors get burned multiple times, what that actually ends up doing is hindering Chinese recovery coming out of whatever recession they have to go through or, or debt jubilee, if you will, on some of that real estate debt that they're working through right now. Moving into opportunities, real rates are near a multi-decade high, essentially. Going back to 2008, we haven't had real rates get near 2%. And when we talk about real rates, we're really talking about what's the yield on a 10-year treasury versus what the expected inflation is over the next 10 years. And if you take those two numbers and subtract the inflation expectations off that 10-year, you get just about 2% is what your actual real yield is. Jason and Todd talked about that on the last podcast. Um, But there's some ancillary opportunities that come out of that if real rates do start to come down, if the Fed has to start cutting rates or and implement some sort of yield curve control at some point or something of that nature. So Yeah, and just like with China, you always want to be forward-looking in all of this. So what has happened, what's going on now, and what could happen going forward? One of the areas that has really been beat up is real rates have gone up and yields have gone up, and the market is utilities. Utilities have had a, a really, really bad year. The S&P is up about 17% year-to-date. The utility sector in the U.S. is down 13%, so it's a 30% gap between the two. Utilities are supposed to be that safer money within there. A lot of people call them bond proxies, you know, with from an equity standpoint. But there's a 30% underperformance there. So far right now, utilities are really oversold. Barely any of them have upward momentum. And what I mean by that is that they're above their 200 or above their 50-day moving average. And so people have been getting out of them throughout the course of the year. Looking forward, though, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to go out and do this today, but looking forward, you start to look at that and go, okay, they've sold off, everything else has done well. Things like that rotate. You all start, look, start looking at the valuation. For looking at the next 12 months from a PE standpoint, um, they're pretty undervalued right now. Utilities have about a 16 PE going forward. Their 10-year average is 17 and a half, so it's under. It's not drastic, but it is certainly under. Then you look at it versus the S&P. The S&P right now is at 19, versus 16 for utilities. So there's some attractiveness there. And when you look at that too, there's going to be more growth with the S&P, so probably should have a higher PE ratio than utilities will. But you start to look at the S&P as a whole is above what its long-term average is, 17.7 over the last 10 years. You start to look at that as an opportunity spot to maybe start legging in or maybe look at them and see, hey, what's really going on underneath? And then if yields do start to come down, if there's a pullback from the Fed, if the market starts to push those longer term rates down, the yield on utilities does start to look more attractive and there's some availability there. Speaking of utilities, I mean, infrastructure building is going to be a big component of, I think, the next decade or plus. Uh, We had Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other stimulus packages that were introduced over the last several years. And some of that targeted our infrastructure build. Texas, I think, is one of the prime examples of someone that needs help with some of their infrastructure. Two years ago, we had essentially that winter that crippled their economy for a few days while everything froze. And then now we have potentially rolling blackouts on Friday. Energy department more or less okayed the go-ahead for running generators and other essentially power sources to generate enough power so that they didn't have to have rolling blackouts in Texas. Today, 40% of the power that's produced in Texas is actually renewable energy. I don't think many people actually realize that. Uh, They're only second to California, which is at 52% of their energy is renewable. But clearly there's a sustainability problem with the development and the generation of that renewable energy that Texas is producing, predominantly solar and wind. And when wind kind of dies down, 
which is what has been happening, it's causing this issue that we're seeing. So I think there's going to be a benefactor either from debt issuance having to be made, so bondholders could have an opportunity to get in on Texas debt, which is really high-rated debt, or some sort of contracts get issued to some publicly traded companies that could present an opportunity down the road. Speaking of issuing debt by government, in our threats area now, fiscal policy is going to be a a threat that's starting to unfold here over the next quarter or two. Student loan repayment starts back on in October. We also have a number of stimulus packages that were issued during the COVID era that are coming to an end. And one of the big ones that doesn't get a lot of attention is actually the child care one. About $24 billion was in essence issued to child care facilities to help them, one, compete on the wage side against the likes of Home Depot, Starbucks, McDonald's, etc. And then also bring on new employees to bring people, allow people to bring their kids into childcare so that they could go work. And with this package coming off, the estimates today are 70,000 childcare facilities may have to close. And then that also leads to about 3 million children being without childcare heading into the end of the year, which we just got to the peak participation rate for women of all time, which in, in the prime working age, which is awesome. But if we can't continue to pay for daycare or have daycare for those individuals that need it, I think you start to see some pressure occur on the labor force side where families have to make a decision of whether or not to go to work and pay for childcare or just stay at home and forego that income. Yeah, I think the real key to all of this is is spending the amounts of spending and the time that we're spending. Generally, governments are going to run huge deficits in a recession, trying to come out of that recession. And what we saw is that that happened, but then it just kept going. And usually when the economy is expanding, the government will then pull back or stay flat, at least in order to allow that to happen. But then that helps extent the U.S. ever really has tried to control its deficit and its debt, allow that process to kind of work through. And what we've done here is we've just continued that spending and, and made that deficit blow up. And we head into a contraction. And that's a lever that might not be able to get pulled anymore, or at least to the same extent that it did before. Are both parties going to be able to agree on additional spending when we already have a trillion dollar budget deficit? And how is that going to work? So from a U.S. standpoint, when we're looking at this, when we're looking at, you know, tax code changes in the next couple of years that are already going to go happen unless they get extended, you know, we're running to a spot where the government might not be able to bail out. And the Federal Reserve is also trying to reduce its balance sheet this exact same time we're doing this right now. So how much are they going? to be able to do that going forward as well, too. So the liquidity that the system needs in times of struggle is not necessarily going to be there. Yeah, the timing is what's off, right? So you got like fiscal policy that's been stimulative while the quantitative tightening by the monetary policy has been restrictive. And now you're actually going to have fiscal policy and monetary policy kind of come together at the same time and actually, in essence, be restrictive to a degree. So yeah. And that from a consumer standpoint, the consumer has done really well, but they've also gone into debt and increased that debt in order to do so. And we're coming off the summer of Barbenheimer and Beyonce and Taylor Swift. And it's just kind of maybe one last go, although we kind of thought about that at the beginning of the year too, with Christmas spending and all of that. But liquidity did get pumped back into the system throughout the year as well too. And people just kept going, but we're going to get to a spot here where that, that's not going to be sustainable. And then one more big threat that we've seen cycling back to China is that China is probably seen in the headlines, China is looking to ban iPhones. And right now, China is Apple's third highest market share when it comes to which countries are purchasing iPhones. But this isn't just a problem for Apple. This is a problem for big tech altogether. It's estimated that 
This could reduce Apple's sales by about 5%. And more importantly, it sets a precedent that China can just do something like this to big U.S. companies. And it's another way that China and the United States can be competing with each other. People have talked about it before, but like cold, another Cold War to a degree, right? Like it's in essence shutting off to each other's economies. And I mean, we're seeing that happen. So Yeah, certainly a fight going back and forth. The U.S. did it with TikTok before, and that's been back and forth. It's just another example of these countries trying to find other ways to kind of battle with each other. And, you know, it becomes negotiating tactics between the two of them, but ultimately it's more and more drama. Let's go around the room and check our headlines. What's our headline strength? We've got two of them. I've got high yield performance so far year to date and Trevor Nargis getting engaged. Headline weakness. Chinese governance. Headline opportunity. Uh, looking to take advantage when real rates start to go down. And what's our headline threat? Fiscal policy and Chinese bans. Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. This is episode 68. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Insight perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Nick Hillstrom, trader at Annex Wealth Management Investment Team. Thank you. Thank you. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. And Matt Morsey, our investment team manager. Thank you. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.